Section 56 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malachi Orozco. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Una of the Garden, Part 1. Chapter 1. An hour after his pupils had gone home, Eric Murray came out of the old stone schoolhouse at Stillwater and locked the door. He had lingered behind to solve some problems for his advanced students, and now the sunlight was slanting in warm yellow lines through the thick maple grove to the west of the building. A group of sheep were nibbling the lush grass in a far corner of the playground. The bell of one of them wore tinkled faintly and musically on the still, mellow May air. The scene was very peaceful and pastoral. Almost too much so, the young man thought with a slight shrug as he stood on the worn steps and gazed about him. How was he going to put in a whole month here, he wondered, with a little smile at his own expense. Father would chuckle if he knew I were sick of it already, he thought as he walked across the playground to the road. Well, the week is ended at any rate. I've earned my own living for five whole days, and that is something I could never say before in all my twenty-five years of existence. It's an exhilarating thought, but teaching a district school is distinctly not exhilarating, at least in such a well-behaved school as this, where the pupils are so painfully good that I haven't even the traditional excitement of thrashing obstreperous big boys. Everything seems to go by clockwork. Larry must have been a model driller. I feel as if I were only the big cog in an orderly machine. Well, I can surely stand it for a month. Then I'll tell the pater he can have his own way with me, and that he was right and I was wrong. He swung into the road with a whistle and walked with a free, easy stride that was somehow suggestive of reserve strength and power down the long slope of the hill. The maples crowded thickly to the roadside on either hand, and beneath them were beds of tender green curly young ferns. Here and there a wild plum hung out its feathery bloom like a banner of springtime. The air was fragrant and balmy with wandering breezes. Now and then Eric met some callow lad on horseback or a shrewd-faced farmer in a cart who nodded and called out cheerily, Howdy, master. He knew most of them already, but at the foot of the hill he met two people he did not know. They sat in an old-fashioned, shabby wagon and were watering their horse at the brook. Eric surveyed them somewhat curiously. They did not look in the least like the ordinary run of Stillwater people. The boy had a distinctly foreign look, in spite of the blue check shirt and homespun trousers, which seemed to be the regulation workaday outfit for the Stillwater farmer lads. He was lithe and long-limbed, with a head of thick, silky black curls and long, slender hands. His face was delicately featured and olive-tinted, save for the cheeks, which had a dusky crimson bloom that would not have shamed a girl's. His mouth was red and full, and his eyes large and black. He was a handsome fellow, but the expression of his face was slightly sullen. The other occupant of the wagon was a man of about sixty, with iron-gray hair, a harsh-featured face and deep-set eyes. His mouth was close-lipped and relentless, and did not look as if it had ever smiled. 
Indeed, the idea of smiles could not be connected with this man. It was incongruous. Yet there was nothing repellent about the face, and there was something in it that attracted Eric's attention, for he rather prided himself on being a student of physiognomy, and he felt sure that this man was no ordinary stillwater farmer of the genial, garrulous type with which he had become familiar. Long after the old wagon, with its oddly assorted pair, had gone lumbering up the hill, Eric found himself thinking of the stern, heavy-browed man and the black-eyed, red-lipped boy. Eric Murray himself was good to look upon. Tall, broad-shouldered young fellow that he was, with steady grayish-blue eyes and thick, wavy chestnut hair. He had been the most popular member of his graduating class that spring, and the most envied, for his father was a millionaire, and Eric was his only son. Mr. Murray, senior, was a good-hearted, choleric old gentleman who loved this boy of his with the dead mother's eyes better than anything else on earth, and his business next. It had always been an understood thing that Eric was to go into the firm when he was through college and fit himself to carry on its many enterprises. Eric had assented to this without any particular thought, regarding it as a matter of course, but during the preceding winter he had taken a sudden notion that he would like to go in for law. Full of this idea he had gone home to his father, and abruptly told him so. If Mr. Murray had kept his temper and discussed the affair reasonably, he would probably have soon induced Eric to drop what was, after all, only a young man's passing whim. Instead, Mr. Murray grew unwisely angry, thumped, and denounced, and finally issued an ultimatum to the effect that Eric might go and study tomfoolery if he liked, but that he need not expect any assistance in so doing. "'I will earn my own way through, then,' Eric had retorted hotly. He flung himself out of his father's presence in a rather petulant state of mind. He felt that he had been unjustly treated, and it angered him. It was time, he said to himself, that his father ceased treating him like a boy who must always be told what was good for him. He would show him that he was able to stand on his own feet. The next day he received a letter from Lawrence West, a former academy classmate who was teaching in an up-country district. West wrote that his health would not permit him to return to his school duties after the spring vacation in May, and he had been unable to find a substitute. He asked Eric to take his place. It will only be for four weeks, until the last of June, he wrote. The school year ends then, and there will be plenty of teachers looking for the place. I have a couple of pupils preparing to try the academy entrance examinations, and I do not like to leave them in the lurch. But the doctor has ordered me off and there is nothing else for it, unless you can help me out. Come up and take the school for the rest of the term, you petted son of luxury. It will do you good to learn how rich a man feels when he is earning forty dollars a month by his own unaided efforts. Eric had laughed and written Larry that he would go. He went at once. His parting with his father was friendly enough. Mr. Murray shook his son's hand and brusquely told him to take care of himself right often, and come home when he had worked off his yeasty ideas and was prepared to be sensible. During the week he had already spent in Stillwater's green seclusion and tranquility, Eric's anger had cooled, and his ruffled pride had become smooth. He was ready to laugh at himself. After all, he had made a mistake. There were many lawyers in the world, perhaps too many, but there were not too many good, honest men of business ready to do clean, big things for the comfort and betterment of humanity, 
to plan great enterprises and carry them through with brain and courage, to manage and control, to aim high and strike one's aim. That was what he was fitted for, and that was what he would do. Meanwhile, for four more weeks, he would teach in the Stillwater School as well and worthily as might be. Eric liked to do all he attempted to do in a reliable, clean-cut fashion, leaving no loose ends. So he planned and thought as he walked along. His plans and thoughts were practical. Romantic visions played no part in them. The witchery of the spring was all about him in the earth and air and sky. He felt it and loved it and yielded to it as any one of clean life and sane pulses must do, but he was not beguiled by it into lightly turning to thoughts of love. It thrilled his ambitions rather than his emotions. Eric had succeeded to Larry's abiding place as well as his desk. He boarded with Robert Williamson and his wife, an elderly couple who lived on the hill opposite the school. Eric greatly liked Mrs. Williamson, a quiet woman who looked after him in a motherly way. She talked little, and her face was marked by the traces of outlived pain. He liked her husband somewhat less. Robert, or Bob, as he was commonly called, despite his sixty years. Williamson was a talkative, gossipy man who liked to have a finger in everyone's pie. They supposed Eric to be a poor college student earning his own way through, like Larry West. Eric did not disturb this, although he said nothing to contribute to it. The Williamsons were at tea when he went in. Eric hung his hat on the whitewashed wall and took his place between window and table. "'You see, we're busy waiting for you,' said old Robert. "'You're late this evening, Master. You've missed Alexander Tracy. He was here to ask you up. You'll need to stand in with him, for he's got a son that may brew up trouble when he starts into school. Seth Tracy's a young imp.' "'Perhaps I met Mr. Tracy,' said Eric. "'Is he a tall man with gray hair and a dark, stern face?' "'No, he's a round, jolly fellow, was Alec. "'I reckon the man you met was Thomas Marshall. "'I saw him driving down the road, too. "'He won't be troubling you with invitations up. "'Small fear of it. "'The Marshalls ain't sociable, to say the least of it. "'Mother, pass the biscuits to the master.' "'Who was the young fellow he had with him?' asked Eric. "'Neil.' Neil Marshall. That is a scotchy name for such a face and eyes. I should rather have expected Giuseppe or Angelo. The boy looks like an Italian. Reckon it's likely, seeing that's what he is. How happens it that an Italian boy with a scotch name is living in a place like Stillwater? Well, master, it was this way. About twenty years ago, a couple of Italian pack peddlers came along and called at the Marshall place, a man and his wife. The woman took sick there, and old Janet Marshall took her in and nursed her. A baby was born, and the woman died. Then the father disappeared and was never seen or heard tell of afterwards, and the Marshalls were left with the youngsters on their hands. They kept him and brought him up. Folks advised them to send him to the orphan asylum, but the Marshalls were never fond of taking advice. They called the child Neil, and he's always lived there. Folks don't like him. They say he ain't to be trusted. It's certain he's awful hot-tempered, and when he went to school, he nigh about killed some of the boys he took a spite to. But then, I reckon they tormented him a lot. He's a great hand at the fiddle, and likes company, but they say he takes sulky spells. Couldn't be any wonder, living with the Marshalls. They're all as queer as Dick's hat-band. Father, you shouldn't talk so, said Mrs. Williamson, rebukingly. Well now, mother, you know they are. 
You know, they never were like other people. They live away up yonder, master, half a mile in from the road, with a thick spruce wood twixt them and all the rest of the world. They never go anywhere, and nobody ever goes there. There's just old Thomas and his sister Janet, and a niece of theirs, and this here Neil. They are a queer, dour, cranky lot, and I will say it, mother. There, give your old man a cup of tea. Chapter 2 Shortly before sunset that evening, Eric went for a walk. He liked to indulge in long tramps through the stillwater fields and woods in the sweet mellowness of the spring weather. Most of the stillwater houses were built along the shore road and about the corners. The farms ran back from them into solitudes of woods and pasture lands. Eric struck southwest in a new direction and walked briskly along. The spruce wood in which he finally found himself was pierced with arrows of ruby light from the setting sun. He went through it, walking up a long purple aisle where the wood flooring was brown and elastic under his feet, and came out beyond it on a scene that surprised him. No house was in sight, but he found himself looking into a garden, an old garden, evidently long neglected and forsaken. But a garden dies hard, and this one, which must have been a very delightful spot once, was delightful still, none the less so from the air of gentle melancholy that seemed to pervade it, the melancholy that invests all places which have once been the scene of joy and pleasure and are so no longer, places where hearts have throbbed and eyes brightened and merry voices echoed, the ghosts of these things seem to linger in their old haunts. The charm of the place took sudden possession of Eric as nothing had ever done before. He was not given to fancies, the practical, business-like young fellow, but the garden laid hold of him and drew him to itself, and he was never to be quite the same again. He went into it through the little gap in the low stone dike around it, and so, unknowing, went forward to meet all that life held for him. The garden was large and square, bounded on all four sides by the stone dike which was so old that its crevices were full of ferns and many wild leaves and vines. At regular intervals along the dike were tall spruces with the evening wind singing in their tops, and in the southwest corner was a thick plantation of young firs that had evidently grown up of themselves. Most of the garden was grown lushly over with grass but the old paths were still quite visible and were bordered by stones and large pebbles. In the center, between two high rows of lilac trees out-blossoming in purple, was a large square bed all ablow with the starry spikes of the June lilies, as the country people call the white narcissus. Their penetrating, haunting fragrance distilled on the evening air and met him on every soft puff of wind, no matter where he walked. In the very center of the bed was a clump of tall white and purple irises. The corners of the garden were gay with thickly growing yellow daffodils. Along the southern side grew another hedge of lilac trees, and just inside the gap by which he had entered was a tall white lilac bush. Eastward there were several branching bird-cherries, snowy with bloom, and everywhere, as it seemed, grew clumps of bleeding heart, 
tremulous with spikes of rosy flowers. There were many rose bushes also, but it was too early in the season for roses. At each side of the garden was a bench formed rudely out of surf-worn red sandstone from the shore. Eric walked across the garden and sat down on the one behind the southern lilac trees. From where he sat, he now got a glimpse of a house about mm, a quarter of a mile away, its gray gable peeping out from a dark spruce wood. It seemed a dull, gloomy place, and he did not know who lived there. He had a wide outlook to the south over far, hazy fields and misty blue hills and valleys. The air was very sweet with the breath of all the growing things and of the bed of mint upon which he had trampled. Robins were whistling, clear and sweet and sudden, in the woods. This is a veritable haunt of ancient peace, he quoted. I could fall asleep here and dream dreams. What a sky! Could anything be bluer? And such frail white clouds that melt away as you look at them. What a dizzying, intoxicating fragrance lilacs have. I wonder if perfume could set a man drunk. Those narcissi. <gasps> What's that? Across the mellow stillness, mingled with the croon of the wind in the trees and the calls of the robins, came a strain of delicious music, so beautiful and fantastic that Eric held his breath in astonishment and delight. Was he dreaming? No, it was real music, the music of a violin played by some hand inspired with the very spirit of harmony. He had never heard anything like it, and he felt quite sure that nothing exactly like it ever had been heard before, that that wonderful music was coming straight from the soul of the unseen violinist and translating itself so into those most airy and delicate of sounds, those most airy and delicate of sounds for the first time. It was an elusive, haunting melody, strangely suited to the time and place. It had in it the sigh of the wind and the spruces, the eerie whispering of the grasses at dewfall, the white thoughts of the narcissi, all the soul of all the old laughter and song and tears and gladness and sobs the garden had ever known in the lost years. And besides all this, there was in it a pitiful, plaintive cry as of some imprisoned thing calling for freedom, for, for utterance. At first Eric listened mutely and moodlessly, lost in wonderment. Then a very natural curiosity overcame him. Who in Stillwater could play a violin so? And who was playing so here in this deserted old garden of all places? He rose and walked along the lilac hedge, going as slowly and silently as possible, not to interrupt the player. When he reached the bed of June lilies, he stopped short in new amazement, and again was tempted to think he must be dreaming. On the stone bench under the branching white lilac trees, a girl was sitting, playing on an old brown violin. Her eyes were on the faraway horizon, and she did not see Eric. For a few moments he stood there and looked at her, and the picture she made photographed itself on his vision to the last detail, never again to be blotted from his book of remembrance. He had, in his twenty-five years of life, met 
hundreds of pretty women, scores of handsome women, a, a scant half-dozen of really beautiful women, but he knew at once, beyond the possibility of question, that he had never seen or even imagined anything so exquisite as this girl of the garden. Her loveliness was so perfect that his breath almost went from him in his first delight of it. Her face was oval and delicately tinted, marked in every line and feature with the expression of absolute purity found in the angels and madonnas of old paintings, a purity that had in it no faintest stain of earthliness. Her head was bare and her thick jet-black hair was parted over to her brow, one moonbeam from the forehead to the crown, and hung in two long braids over her shoulders. Her eyes were of such a blue as Eric had never seen in eyes before, the tint of the sea in the still, calm light that follows after a fine sunset, and they were fringed with very long silken lashes and arched over by most delicately black eyebrows. Her collarless dress of pale blue print revealed her smooth white throat. The sleeves were rolled up above her elbows, and the hand that guided the bow of her violin was, perhaps, the most beautiful thing about her. Perfect in shape and outline, firm and white, with taper, rosy-nailed fingers. She was about eighteen years old, apparently. Suddenly she turned her lovely eyes on Eric. The change in her was startling. She sprang to her feet, the bow slipping from her hand and the music breaking in mid-strain. Every hint of color fled from her face, and she trembled like one of the wind-stirred Narcissus. I beg your pardon, said Eric hastily. I am sorry I have alarmed you, but your music was so beautiful that I forgot that you were not aware of my presence. He stopped in dismay, for he realized that the expression on the girl's face was one of terror, not merely the startled alarm of a shy, childlike creature who had thought herself alone, but absolute terror. It was betrayed in her blanched and quivering lips and in the wide blue eyes that stared back into his with the expression of some trapped wild thing. It hurt him that any woman should look at him like that, at him who had always held womanhood in reverence for the sake of the mother he had loved in boyhood. Don't look so, he exclaimed, thinking only of calming her fear and speaking as he would to a child. I won't hurt you. You are safe. Quite safe. In his eagerness to reassure her, he took an unconscious step forward. Instantly she turned, and without a word or sound, fled up the garden, through a gap in the western dyke, and along what seemed to be a lane beyond, arched over with misty white wild plum trees. Before Eric could draw his breath, she had vanished from his sight among the firs. He stooped and picked up the violin bow. Well, what a mysterious thing, he said aloud. Am I bewitched? Who? What was she? Can it be possible that she's a Stillwater girl? And why should she be so frightened at the sight of me? I never thought I was a very hideous person, but this is certainly no temptation to vanity. 
Perhaps I've wandered into an enchanted garden and been outwardly transformed into an ogre. There is something uncanny about it, apparently. Anything might happen in such a place. He glanced about it with a whimsical smile. The light was fading, and the garden was full of soft, creeping shadows and silences. It seemed to wink sleepy eyes of impish enjoyment at his perplexity. He laid the violin bow on the stone bench. Well, there's no use in my following her, and I have no right to, even if it were of use. But I wish she hadn't fled in such terror. Eyes like that were never meant to express anything but tenderness and trust. All the way home he pondered the mystery of who the girl might be. Let me see, he reflected. Old Mr. Williamson was describing the Stillwater girls for my benefit the other evening. I think he said there were four handsome ones in the district. Flory Woods, Melissa Bell, Jenny Scott, and Clara Mae Ferguson. No, no, that girl couldn't be a, a Flory or a Melissa or a Jenny, while Clara Mae is completely out of the question. Well, there is some bewitchment in the affair. I'd better forget all about it. Eric found that he couldn't forget all about it. The girl's face haunted him. The mystery of her tantalized him. He might have asked the Williamsons about her, but somehow he shrank from that. The next evening, with a little shrug at himself, he wandered southwest over the fields again. He found the garden easily. He had half expected not to find it the same, still fragrant, grassy spot. It had no occupant, and although he lingered there for an hour, no one came. But the violin bow was gone from the stone bench. The keenness of his disappointment surprised him, even vexed him. What nonsense it was to be so worked up because a little girl he had seen for five minutes failed to appear. He called himself a fool, and left at last in a petulant mood. For two days he refused to let himself think of the garden. The evening of the third found him in it again, again to be disappointed. He went back determined to solve the mystery by open inquiry. Fortune favored him, for he found Mrs. Williamson knitting alone in her kitchen in the dusk. Mrs. Williamson, he said with an affectation of carelessness, I stumbled on an old deserted garden back behind the woods over there the other evening. A charming bit of wilderness. Do you know whose it is? I suppose it must be the old Connor's garden, answered Mrs. Williamson after a moment's reflection. I had forgotten it. It must be twenty years since the Connors moved away. Their house and barns were burned down, and Mr. and Mrs. Connors sold the land to Thomas Marshall and moved to town. Mrs. Connors was very fond of flowers. There was a young girl in it playing on a violin, said Eric, annoyed to find that it was an effort to speak of her, and that the blood mounted to his face as he did so. She ran away in alarm as soon as she saw me, although I do not think I did anything to frighten or vex her. I have no idea who she was. Do you know? Mrs. Williamson did not make an immediate reply. 
Finally, she said, with a tone of new interest in her voice, I suppose it must have been Una Marshall, Master. And if it was, you've seen what very few people in Stillwater have ever seen. And those few have never seen her close by. It's no wonder she ran away. She isn't used to seeing strangers. I'm rather glad if that was the reason, said Eric. I admit I didn't like to see a girl so frightened of me as she seemed to be. She was so terrified that she never uttered a word, but she just ran like a deer to cover. She couldn't have said a word in any case, said Mrs. Williamson quietly. She's dumb. Eric sat in dismayed silence for a moment. That beautiful creature afflicted in such a fashion. Oh, it was horrible. He felt a pang of almost personal regret. Impossible, he cried at last, remembering. Why, she played the violin exquisitely. I never heard anything like it. It's impossible that a deaf-mute can play like that. Oh, she isn't deaf. That's the strange part of it. She can hear as well as anybody and understands everything that is said to her, but she can't speak a word and never could or at least so they say, but nobody knows much about her. Janet and Thomas never speak of her, and Neil won't either. He's been well questioned, but he won't say a word about Una ever, and gets mad if folks persist. I think it's terrible the way she has been brought up, but the Marshalls are strange people. Mr. Murray, I, I kind of reproved Pa for saying so, you remember, but it is true. They have strange ways. And you've really seen Una? What does she look like? I've heard that she was handsome. I thought her very beautiful, said Eric briefly. But how has she been brought up, Mrs. Williamson, and why? It's a sad story. Una is the niece of Thomas and Janet Marshall. Her mother was Margaret Marshall, their sister. Margaret was a great deal younger than Janet and Thomas. She was the, the second wife's child. Her mother died when she was born, and Janet brought her up. I knew Margaret Marshall well once. We were girls together, real good friends, before she turned against all the world. She was a, she was a strange girl in some ways, even then, but I always liked her. She was very pretty and a little vain. Very proud. Oh, <laughs> she was very proud. She was smart, too, and taught school over at Radnor. It was there she met a man named Ronald Fraser. He was a stranger, and nobody knew much about him, but he was very handsome and taking, and all the girls were in love with him, so it was said. Old James Marshall, Margaret's father, didn't approve of him much, but... Margaret coaxed him around. She could do pretty near anything with him. He was so proud of her. And he finally gave in and consented for her to marry Ronald Fraser. They had a big wedding. Margaret always liked to make a display, and I think she wanted to show off her fine husband to the girls who were envying her. They went to live at Radnor, and for a little while, everything was well. Margaret had a nice house and was gay and happy, and then. Well, then Ronald Fraser's 
wife turned up looking for him his real wife oh it was true enough she proved it ronald fraser wasn't so much to blame he had really thought his wife was dead but there was a terrible scandal of course and he went away and margaret came home to her father's house from the day that she went in over its threshold she never came out until she was carried out in her coffin three years ago and not a soul ever saw her again outside her own family i went to see her but janet told me she would not see me it was foolish of margaret to act so she hadn't done any real wrong and everybody was sorry for her and, and would have helped her all they could but i reckon pity cut her as deep as blame would have done because she was so proud you see and, and had held her head so high they say her father was hard on her too janet and thomas felt it as well not many people had ever been in the habit of going to the marshall place but the few that had soon stopped for they could see that they were not welcome old james marshall died that winter una was born in the spring but nobody ever saw her she was never sent to school or taken to church margaret marshall died three years ago and everybody in stillwater went to the funeral but they didn't see her the coffin lid was screwed down and they didn't see una either it was thought perhaps that janet and thomas would take her out after her mother was gone but they didn't so i suppose they agreed with margaret about the way she'd been brought up i've often felt sorry for the poor girl and i don't think her people did it right by her even if she was mysteriously afflicted she must have had a very sad lonely life if you don't want to be pestered with questions about her master you'd better not let on you've seen her eric was not likely to he had heard all he wanted to know and more so this girl was at the core of a tragedy and she was dumb oh the pity of it he tried to put her out of his thoughts but he could not the memory of her beautiful face drew him with a power he could not resist the next evening he went again to the garden although he called himself a fool for it end of section 56